Good morning. Got to make sure I'm on. Okay. Good morning. Uh, welcome to this gathering of Anchor Church. Um, if, if you're visiting with us, my name is Joe. I'm one of the elders uh, for Anchor Church, and it's just a privilege to welcome you here together as we just sang uh, to give glory and, and praise to our great God um, for all that he is and all that he has done for us as his people. Um, there's some Bibles over there on the table if you need one. Uh, we will be looking uh, primarily at Ephesians chapter 4 today. Um, so yeah, you can grab, those, grab one of those if you need it. Um, as, as we get started, I've been thinking a lot this week about um, kind of the default story that, that we have in our culture. Now, we live in a culture where, where each of us is told from early on that, um, that, that, that there's, there's, this, there's this great calling, there's this great passion, there's this great dream that we each need to follow. We each need to find that thing and, and chase it. And, and that, that when, we, when, we, when we do that, we're going to find great fulfillment, we're going to find great purpose and great meaning in our lives. Um, and that, that we'll, we'll, we'll be able to live uh, with, with this adoring public, with, with the approval and the recognition of our, of our friends, of our parents, of our, our peers, um, that, we're, that we're supposed to do, do something big that gets us pressed, that we're supposed to do something that at least gets us some, some likes on Facebook or some retweets or something like that. Um, and, and there's this, this, just this narrative that is, is the default for all of us that we all kind of come up in and, and we're just on this path to greatness, right? It's kind of the American dream that we're going to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and we're going to go and we're going to do the thing that we're supposed to do. Now, of course, there's a problem with this narrative. There's a, there's a fundamental problem in that um, it puts me at the center. It puts you at the center of this story. And so, so there's a story that's being written that, that we have to write, that I have to write, and I have to uh, make myself the center of the story. You have to make yourself the center of the story. Uh, you have to find that thing that's going to fulfill you. You have to do all the right things. You have to perform properly so that you're going to get to that fulfilling conclusion. Um, and the problem there is that ultimately none of us are capable of actually being the center of the story. None of us are capable of actually fulfilling that, that thing that we think we're called to. Um, ultimately, the curtain's going to come down on us. And the question is, what now? How do I finish the story? The story's going to end but I don't have control over how it finishes. Um, and so it can feel like, well, this is just a modern thing. This is just, you know, 21st century Seattle or America, that this is, you know, this is something that we're just struggling with. But it, actually, that's the default story of humanity from the very beginning. Um, and we see the story unfold throughout Scripture, throughout the Bible, um, starting in Genesis chapter 3, where our first parents, Adam and Eve, the whole human race at that point, living in relationship with God, in harmony with each other, and then... They choose to, to question the story. They choose to question God. They choose to try to push God out of the center of the story and put themselves into the center of the story. And you can fast forward into Exodus uh, when, when God's people, the Israelites, have been in captivity and slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and God, God leads them out, uh, calls Moses to go and, and lead them out to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and he does uh, great signs. He, he, he sends plagues to change Pharaoh's mind, to let, to let Israel go. Um, they, he lets them go, they're, they're head tail, hightailing it out of Egypt, uh, they get to the sea, God opens up the sea, they can cross on dry land, and when Pharaoh decides, no, I'm going to go get those people back, because um, our economy might be uh, suffering since we've lost all our slaves, he gets to the sea, they start to cross over, God causes the sea to come back over, and it destroys Pharaoh and his army. Um, 
And then Moses goes up on a mountain to talk to God, and the people start to look around, and he's been up there for a while, and they start to say, where'd that Moses guy go? Uh, so they go to Mo Moses' brother Aaron, and they say, we need some gods that are going to lead us. Uh, we don't know where this Moses guy went to, and so he says, well, give me all your gold, take some out of their earrings, they melt it down, he makes his calf out of gold, and he says, Israel, these are the gods that led you out of Israel, or out of Egypt. Here's your gods. And they worship this calf. Um, or we can, we can fast forward into um, 1 Samuel 8, where, where the, the, the Israelites have come into the land that God promised them, despite their rejection of him with the golden calf, despite all the disobedience that they did, all the ways that they turned away from him, um, going through the wilderness, he brings them still faithfully into the land that he promised them. Um, and he's, he's, he's given them rest from all their enemies, all the nations around them, all the nations that were in the land he's driven out for them. And then they start to look around and they say, you know, all those countries around us, they have kings. They have a human king. All we've got is, is God, and we can't really, and he's not, he's not visible. Um, we, need, we need something that makes us look impressive like the, like the people around us. And, and so, so God tells his, his servant Samuel, he says, tell them what a human king will do to them. And so Samuel gives them this laundry list in 1 Samuel 8 and talks about how when, if, they take, if they choose a human king, the way that he's going to rule over them, the way he's going to abuse them, the way that he's going to put himself at the center and, and trample on everyone else. And they say, no, we still want a king. We still want a king like the people around us. Um, and then we can fast forward to 1 Kings 22. And after we've had a series of these kings who would just go from bad to worse, and every once in a while there's one who kind of turns back to God. But we get to this guy Ahab, who is completely just probably the most wicked king in that line, and he has completely turned away from God. And, and he and the, the kingdom is split at this time. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And, and so he and Jehoshaphat, the king in the northern kingdom, they're going to go out to war against, against this other nation. And so they call all the prophets and they say, are we going to win? What do we do? And the prophets say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Lord says you're going to have victory. That's great. And Jehoshaphat asks Ahab, he goes, well, isn't there any other prophet of the Lord that we could call? And he goes, well, there's this guy Micaiah. But he's always saying things that I don't like. He's always telling, prophesying things that are negative for me. And he's like, well, let's call him anyway. So he comes in and Micaiah you know, just goes, oh yeah, the Lord says you're going to have success. And Ahab's like, how many times do I have to tell you to stop lying to me? Tell me the truth. And he goes, no, you're going to be destroyed. And they go out to war anyways, um, and Ahab gets killed. Um, and and, and the, these stories, this, this, this kind of pattern of humans trying to put ourselves in the center of the story... I mean, the, the, the examples are just ubiquitous throughout human history, throughout the rest of the Bible. Um, it's the default story that each of us has. Um, but the good news is that there's another story. So if that story is the default, the other story is the gospel story. The gospel story is the narrative where God is at the center of the story. Um, and, and we see throughout Scripture that even through, I mean, just those few examples that I showed, in each of those examples where people openly reject God, God is continually kind and gracious and loving, and he continues to pursue them and say, if you reject me, here's what's going to happen. It's not going to go well for you. If you reject me, you are going to, to find yourself alienated from me. You're going to find yourself alienated from each other, and you're going to do great damage to yourself, to each other, to the whole world. Um, and he continues to warn and continues to, to plead with his people to come back. But he also promises. He also promises that he's going to send a savior, that he's going to send someone who's going to come and make things right. He's going to send his son, Jesus, to come and to, to live, come as a baby 
an innocent, helpless baby and grow up as a human, fully God, fully man, to come and live the, the life that we can't live on our own and to die in our place. Um, and then he does it. He does it. He sends Jesus. Jesus becomes flesh. Jesus lives a perfect, sinless life in complete um, and total dependence on God the Holy Spirit in complete obedience to God the Father. He goes to the cross. He, 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 gets, he gets condemned to death because he claimed to be God. And so he goes to the cross and he, he dies a rebel's death that, that you and I deserved. Um, but then in three days he rises again from the dead, proving that he was who he said he was, proving that he is God. And he offers to everyone who would believe in his name. And the, the prophet Joel said that it will come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Jesus offers that to us. Um, and so that, so that we could be saved from sin, that we could be saved from death, that we could be saved from having to strive, having to perform, having to put ourselves at the center of the so- story and saved into his story where he's at the center and where we're, we're reunited, reconnected to God, reconnected to each other, that, that we are united together in him. And that we live a life of great joy and freedom and hope because we don't have to be at the center. Because the only one who can be at the center is at the center now, and that's God. So there's, I think there's one important question um, that, that we all need to consider today. And the question is, which of those stories are you living in? Are you living in the default story where you're at the center? Um, or are you living in the gospel story where Jesus is at the center? Everything that, that we're going to look at in Ephesians 4 hinges on the answer to that question. Um, and I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want it to sound like this is cut and dried, like it's a, a black and white thing. Because I know the answer for me, if I'm honest, more often than not, is that, that yeah, I know, I know the, the gospel story. I believe the gospel story. I want to live in the gospel story. But much of the time, I find myself living as if I'm still at the center. I find myself living as if I have to perform to somehow earn whatever the thing is that that I want, that I need to get. Um, I I find myself trying to to get the approval of you all. I try to to get the approval of people at work or the approval of people in the neighborhood so that they'll think that I'm good. Um, That might be where you are. Um, or you might be here and you may have never considered that there's a narrative that's different than the default that you've grown up with. You may have never considered that there might be a problem with you being at the center of the story. Uh, you, might, you might not have thought about the fact that, that you don't make a very good hero or that the curtain's going to come down one day and then what happens? Where do I go from there? How can you control that? That might be where you are. Or you might be here and, and you're seeing Jesus clearly right now. You are living squarely with him at the center of the story. And if that's where you are, praise God, that's amazing. That's where you're meant to be. Um, but no matter where we are on that spectrum, I believe that God has something for each of us in his word today um, to show us not only who he is and who we are as in relationship to him, but now how we live in response to that, um, to that gospel story, how we live in that gospel story. Um, so, so I just want to pray for us now that, um, that we would just hear what God has for us. Father, you're God and we're not. You're the one who created everything. You're the one who who came to get us when we had rejected you. You're the one who saved us. Lord, you're the one who offers us life. So I just ask, Lord, as as we hear this word, no matter where we are on this spectrum, of of faith on this spectrum of belief and on the spectrum of actually living in response to the gospel story, Lord, 
I just ask that you would speak to each one of us now. Lord, anything that's of me, I pray that you would cause it to be forgotten, but whatever is of you, whatever is profitable for us as your people, whatever would draw us to you, I pray that you would cause that to to sink deep into our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear it, minds to understand it, and hearts to believe it, and that you would strengthen our hands to do what you've called us to do, that you would strengthen our legs to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, and we ask this all in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. So what I'd like to do for the rest of our time together is to look at what it looks like to live in this gospel story. Um, and as I said, we're in Ephesians chapter 4, um, particularly verses 1 through 8. So I'm just going to read those for us, and then we're going to kind of walk through them. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is God's word. So Paul starts out in this chapter with a therefore, and that's always a clue to, to look back at what came before. It's, it's, a, it's an argument, if this, then that. So, so we need to look back at chapter 3 and verse 20, uh, which is the preceding uh, section, and Paul is in the middle of a prayer, and he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. So the therefore that Paul gives us is to look back at this foundation. Because he's going to give us this exhortation that we just read in verses 1 through 8. But he wants us to look back at this foundation. That the foundation is in Jesus. And, and that, what, that God is able to do far more abundantly than what we can even think or ask for. I mean, not only can God do that, um, but that he's, he's doing that in his people. If, if, if you're here and you're still at the center of your story, if you're still trying to perform, if you're still trying to, to, to fulfill that story, I just want you to think about that. I just ask you to consider that. Who made the world? Who created you? Who is calling you to himself? I would just invite you to come to Jesus and find rest for your soul, um, find, find great fulfillment in him, find great joy and peace. And if you're here and you've put your faith in Jesus, I think this is just one of those things that we can't remember even enough, that God is at work in you. And not only is he at work in you, um, but he will never stop being at work in you. Um, it says that, that he, he's going to be glorified in the church and in Jesus Christ forever. So when, when you're tempted to forget, um, if you're like me and you're, and you're tempted to try to push God out of the center and put yourself back in the center of it, um, just, just turn back to Jesus. Repent. Admit that you've sinned. Admit that you're trying to go your own way. Admit that you're trying to ignore your need and come back to him and confess your need. Confess that, that you are helpless on your own and receive his grace. 
because he is at the center of the story, and he is able, and he is at work. So this is a great comfort to us. Remember that you're free. Being free, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so that means we don't have to try to you know, fix our sin. When we come back in repentance, we don't have to try to fix what we've broken. We have to just come and confess. We have to come and repent. We have to come in, in dependence on him and say, I need you. Help me do it. But live as you're free. Don't try to, trying to deal with your sin on your own is put it, keeping yourself at the center and not letting Jesus be at the center. So back to verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul, Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of, the, worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And so this comes in the middle of, this chapter 4 comes in kind of the middle of Ephesians. Uh, so, so looking back at chapter 1 of Ephesians, it's just this amazing chapter where Paul just starts out and just, and just tells us what, how good God is. He just reminds us of who our creator is, who our savior is, what God has done to save us. The, the we, he doesn't even mention what, what we've done, but just what God has done for us. And then you get into ch- chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, and I'll read it because I don't want to butcher it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He follows us through. And then in verse 4, I think two of the most beautiful words that I've ever heard, but God. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, verse 4 of chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That seated, that sitting down means it's finished. You're free. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. I mean, it's two sentences down and Paul's repeating himself because we need to hear that again. It's God's grace. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's the foundation for how we walk. That's the calling that we're supposed to walk worthy of. So when he talks about walking this talks about our manner of life, our conduct. Um, this is the pattern of our life, is, is walking in this way. And Paul is going to give us five uh, ways of, of living, of walking, that are, that are worthy of the calling that we just read about. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other in love, and eagerness to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So I just want to look at those quickly, um, one by one. With all humility. Humility is primarily about us seeing rightly who God is. It's primarily about us remembering who God is. And that's why Paul has put the foundation of who God is and what he's done for us. And when we see God for who he is rightly, then we can see who we are rightly, and we can see who other people are rightly. And then we can understand how we relate to others, how we relate to God, how we relate to each other rightly. Uh, we can push back here sometimes because we can say, well, humility, that's like you know, undermining my value. That's, that's making me less, you know, that's, that's kind of like deprecating myself and, and saying, oh yeah, you're better than me and things like that. Um, but it's not about devaluing anyone. 
True humility is about the, finding the right value, seeing the right value of who God is, seeing the right value of who I am in response. And when I see who, who God is and how great he is, how, how, how rich in mercy and goodness and love he is, what does that say about me? I've done nothing. It's all God's grace. I was, I was, I was dead and he made me alive. So now that changes how I see myself and it changes how I see you, right? It changes how we see each other. Because now, instead of, instead of trying to push each other out of the center and, and get ourselves in the spotlight, and I have a spotlight, so it makes, makes it kind of like that, but instead of you know, trying to push somebody else out and get into the spotlight, we can, we can let God be in the center, and we can love each other and, and, and encourage each other to be who God's called us to be. Um, and don't be deceived that humility is this thing that you can't have, because we're called to humility. We're called to be humble. God's people are first and foremost humble because we see who God is. So we should strive. Paul urges us to live in humility. We should strive for humility. There's no room in the church for brashness. There's no room in the church for pride and for for trying to rule over others. There's no room for that. Humility should be the foundation. It's the foundation of the Christian life because we know who God is. And gentleness. Again, there's the, when, when we're all trying to be at the center of the story, there's an incredible harshness in the world, and we see it all around us. I mean, you can look at the news. I don't need to go into examples, but you're all having that example of that thing you read this week about wherever it is in the world where people are trying to be at the center and push other people out and push God out. There's a harshness, but the people of God in humility are called to live with gentleness. Um, look at Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross so that we could have life. And when we're gentle, that also means that we're not trying to force others to be something, to shape each other in, in a way that we think we should be shaped. That we're not trying to, to make, make something of ourselves and we're not trying to, to use somebody else to do something that we need. Um, that means we, we give each other space to be who God's called us to be. Uh, we encourage each other in the gifts and the, the unique ways that God has called us. And, and when we're living with gentleness, this, this is represented also in patience. Um, if we're not trying to shape our own life the way that we want it, if we're not trying to shape somebody else's life the way we want it, but we're allowing God to do that, we're also not trying to make people respond on our schedule. But we trust God that he has his schedule, that he is in control, that he is at work in us. He's at work in me. I don't have to try to, to, to make myself something that I'm not. I, I, need, I, I need to trust God that he's at work in me and he's going to, to accomplish the work that he started. I don't need to make you be something. I don't need to make you respond in a way that I want you to respond. I need to trust God that, that he's going to speak to you and, and that he's going to give you the grace to respond. So it's not on our timetable, it's on, it's on God's timetable. And so if we're living that, that way, that, that humble, gentle, patient life, then we're bearing with each other in love. And that's the fourth thing that Paul tells us, that we're the way to walk that's in a manner worthy of the gospel. And bearing with one, one another in love, this, this is kind of where the rubber starts to meet the road, right? Bearing with, uh, some translations say enduring um, you don't usually endure things that you love. Like, you don't go like, oh, I had to endure that pint of ice cream. That was horrible, right? You don't endure that, you know, that amazing vacation at the beach. Um, 
but we're asked to, to endure, to, embear, to bear with one another in love. Um, th- this means that, again, that we're not, that we're not trying to, to force others to be who we want them to be or force each other to, to, to change or to do something on our schedule, but we're going to trust God. We're going to encourage each other. Um, we're going to see what God has, is doing in each other's lives, and we're going to encourage each other. Yes, we're going to call each other to repentance. Um, and within the church, God gives us a, a, an example, a, a description of how we're supposed to deal with sin. And bearing with each other doesn't mean that we just give people a pass to trample on us or to sin against us. But when someone sins against you, you go to them. You tell them what they've done. You tell them how it has affected you. Maybe they don't know. Maybe they didn't recognize what they were doing. Maybe they do. But if they, but if they hear you, if they respond in, in repentance and they say, I'm sorry, I don't want to live that way, then you forgive them. Uh, but, but, but this is not just going and telling somebody, I don't like what you did. I mean, this is coming and saying, here's what scripture says. Here's, what, here's the way that God teaches us to live. And here's how you're living. And they don't match up. And it's a pleading Please, please, turn away from your sin. Please, remember who you are. Remember who God is first. Remember who you are. Remember the gospel. Remember the story that God's at the center of and live as if he's the center of it. Please, let's, let's find reconciliation in the gospel. Um, and, and, and Jesus gives us, in Matthew 18, he actually gives us a path that we follow there, that, that you go to, the, go to a person. If they don't repent, you, you bring others as witnesses. And if they don't repent still, then you take it to the whole church. Um, Anchor Church, we, we are structured. Our polity is uh, elder-led congregational. That means that, that everyone who's a part of the church is responsible for the church. And so in that situation that I hope we don't have to even deal with, the whole church needs to, to act. The whole church needs to, at a point, say, we've pleaded with this person. We've, we've said... You're living in a way contrary to the gospel. Please, please repent. And now they're not repenting. And so we can't, in good conscience, acknowledge to the world that this is a follower of Jesus because they're not living like a follower of Jesus. And so we continue in love to pursue them. We bear with them in love. And we continue to call them to remember who God is, continue to call them to repentance, continue to call them to the freedom of the gospel rather than living in the slavery that they're living in. So it's a, it's a, it's a pleading. And I, I don't mean to, I'm giving like three minutes on this, and I don't mean to make it sound clean and simple and fun or anything like that, because it's, it's brutal when we have to have this, these conversations. But it's, it's, it's necessary that we would grow in the knowledge of Jesus, and we're going to see more about that in just a minute. And then finally, in, in verse 3, Paul says we're to walk with an eagerness, uh, eager to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Um, because we are one in Christ, because, because there is one body in Christ, we should be eager to maintain that unity. Um, and if we just skip forward a little bit in verse 13, we'll see uh, really what that unity lo- is uh, founded in, the unity of the Spirit. Verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So our unity is in Jesus. Our unity is not in anything else. Our unity is not in whether we like the same books or play the same sports or support the same charitable cause or, or vote the same direction on issues or parties or whatever. That's not where our unity is. Our unity is in Jesus. There's great diversity within the body of Christ, and that's something that is a wonderful testament 
to the fact that God can be at the center of the story and we aren't, that he is at the center. And so we can, we can bear with each other's differences and actually celebrate um, the ways that God is, is working in each other that may not look the same way that he's working in us. And so verses four through six, why do we maintain this unity? Well, because there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And do you see how inclusive that is? I think we, we often look at one, that term, that concept of one as kind of a, an exclusive thing, right? Like there's only one donut left in the box and I need to get it. Um, but, but the Christian concept of one is a concept that is inclusive. Um, that God is, is three, but one, perfectly one. That the church has many members, just like a body has many parts, but is one body. And the, the, there's a depth to that, that that we really can't get into now, but, but just to understand that, not in a limiting way, but in an inclusive way, that we are, we are united in Christ, that all of us together are in Christ. And, and what Paul's going to say next um, is going is to kind of bring that home for us in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, so this oneness, this inclusive oneness, doesn't, uh, doesn't do violence to our personhood. It doesn't, doesn't dilute us into just this kind of amorphous thing. Uh, but Christ gives gifts to each one of us. So in his church, in his body, each one of us has a purpose. You, me, all of us have a purpose. Each one of us has been given a gift. We each have value. We each have, have a responsibility. We all cha- each have worth. We each have, have, have a place at the table. We have a place in the body. And it's a place that's been assigned to us by Jesus. And so I just invite you, if you're in Christ, if you're a part of this church, um, or any church, consider what is... Where has God called you? What is the gift that he's given you? Because we're going to see there's a big reason why he's given The reason that he's given us this is expansive and amazing. But I just invite you to consider that. What are the ways that God is calling you to serve others within his church? This is... I hope you understand that this is all by God's grace. That we can't muster up any of this on our own. But it's God's grace that, that he is working in us to, to, to do um, what he's doing in his church so that the world would know that he is the true God, that he is at the center of the story. And that people would be set free from having to put themselves at the center of the story. That people would be set free from having to perform, from having to, to try to be who they think they need to be for trying to fulfill the mission that they think that they need to fulfill, whether it was something that their parents put on them or something they put on themselves or something they think the culture at large has put on them or their friends or coworkers or whatever. It's a freedom that God is calling us into and it's by his grace. It's a gift of his grace. And it's a freedom where we belong to him and we belong to each other. So as a, as a meditation on on that fact that, that, that we're united in Christ and that we each have uh, a gift, we've each been gifted by God. Um, 
I'd like to, to us to meditate on this together and to proclaim this to each other um, together. So I'm going to just ask you to read with me. We're going to put it up on the screen. I just want you to read together with me verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The gift that God is giving to the world is himself. The gift that God wants to give to each one of us is himself. Himself as the center of the story through Jesus. Himself as the fulfillment of the story through Jesus. If you are in Jesus, you, your story is fulfilled. It's finished. But not in a way that means now your life doesn't matter anymore. Not in a way that means what you do isn't important. But in, a, in an expansive way. In a, in a broadening and freeing way. If you are in Jesus, your life has greater meaning than you can even imagine. There's no greater calling There's no greater passion to live for. There's no greater dream to chase than to live in response to this story, to live in this gospel story for God's glory and for the joy of others, that they would see the truth and be set free from sin, be set free from death, be set free from the slavery that is trying to strive and make something of ourselves that we can't ultimately fulfill. And the freedom of knowing that Jesus has done it all, that we're set free, and that we can live with great hope and great joy and an abundant life in him. So it's my prayer for us that we would just strive as a body to keep Jesus at the center of the story. Um, That we would exhort each other to keep Jesus at the center of the story. When we see each other looking to to push into the center or to to nudge Jesus out and and to sneak in there, as I so often want to do, um, that we would would remind each other that that's not our call. We don't need to be the center of the story. Jesus is the center of the story. And together we can live in that freedom and we can rejoice in him forever. Um, That's my prayer for us today. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the center of the story. You've, you know each of us intimately. Lord, in the Psalms, the psalmist proclaims that, that you knit us together. And that our bo- even when our bodies were being formed in our mother's womb, that you were at work. And you know every thought before it comes on our minds. You know every word before it's on our lips. And so, Lord, we just praise you that, that despite our lack of anything that we could give to you, despite the fact that we were dead, you made us alive through Jesus. Let's pray for us as a church that we would live in that reality. We'd live in the truth that you are the center of the story, you are the fulfillment of the story, and we would live in that freedom and that joy uh, together as your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.